You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Nader sits down with Dr. Robert Lawrence Kuhn, creator, writer, host, and executive producer of the long-running PBS television series, Closer to Truth, to discuss why is there something rather than nothing. The topic of nothing is something people have thought about since time immemorial. Dr. Kuhn describes an experience he had as a boy, which influenced his desire to explore what he calls the nine levels of nothing. The frightening thought, Dr. Kuhn says, is that there could have been nothing. A controversial thought, but one Dr. Kuhn explores from an analytic perspective. Dr. Kuhn has published over 30 books, including The Mystery of Existence, Why Is There Anything at All?, and Closer to Truth, Challenging Current Belief. He is also the author of the best-selling book, The Man Who Changed China, The Life and Legacy of Zhang Zemin. His articles include Why This Universe and Levels of Nothing. Dr. Kuhn is an international corporate strategist, investment banker, public intellectual, and longtime advisor to China's leaders. He has a BA in Human Biology from Johns Hopkins University, a Master of Science from the MIT Sloan School of Management, and a PhD in Anatomy and Brain Research from UCLA. Such a joy to have you, Dr. Kuhn. Let's call each other, if you don't mind. Tony, you can call me, and maybe I'll call you Robert, if it's fine. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not a Bob. When people call me Bob, they want to sell me stock on the phone. So <laughs> very nice to, uh, to meet Tony. I appreciate uh, your work. Uh, we have a lot in common, uh, probably a lot of uh, different uh, approaches to things, but that's what makes interesting conversations. Wonderful. If we can't solve all the problems of the universe in an hour, we're in trouble. <laughs> particularly with your expertise and having gone through so much it's amazing I, it's been a pleasure to look at your work from so many angles let's start with something that is nothing <laughs> it's an amazing when i read your article about nothingness i've never taken it to that level i've contemplated nothingness or nothing actually as the nothing of the physical reality, but you took it further to define actually nothing in a more complete way, and particularly that sometimes we hear scientists saying, why is there something rather than nothing? And many try to explain the fact that something can come out of nothing by defining nothing as something like a unified field or something that has actually elements in it of energy or something like that. So it would then not be really nothing. Would you like to tell us about your vision of nothingness as a start so that we can build something out of it if we can? Well, in all seriousness, nothing is the foundation of my passion to understand reality. It, it comes about, and it's a true story, 
when I was in, in what we call sleepaway camp during the summer, athletics and various things. Uh, and one night, I was 12 years old, I had a thought that so scared me that I wanted to put it out of my mind. And I was successful. I put it out of my mind. And then years later, I tried to remember what scared me such, and I couldn't. And it was only decades later that I realized it was that question that I thought everybody thinks we're thinking it uniquely, but we're not. People have thought about it from time immemorial. Why is there something rather than nothing? The frightening thought that there could have been nothing. Now that itself is controversial. And so what I tried to do is think about nothing, about what it means to say nothing. And I give you two different kinds of nothing. You alluded to one, which is the physicist nothing, uh, which is how things could emerge, bubble out of the quantum foam, create space and time. And what I put together was nine levels of nothing. And what I call the physicist level of nothing was number five. So they're right in the middle of all these different levels of nothing. Now, my list is not magical. Maybe some people would combine several of them or make some others. So it's just a starting place. On the other hand, the concept of nothingness, which you've dealt with and others have from the Eastern traditions, is a different kind of nothingness, the emptiness that is in existent things. I certainly am an acolyte in understanding the Eastern uh, approach to nothingness in the philosophies of Buddhism and, and schools of Hinduism and others. But this is an important thing, and I hope to learn more about that. In fact, in Closer to Truth, over the last two decades, just by natural geography and tradition, we have focused on Judeo-Christian and Islamic, Abrahamic uh, concepts of philosophy of religion. And we did have some Buddhists and, and some um, um, Hindus, but very little, frankly. And we're rectifying that. We're now engaged in a major global philosophy of religion project, which we approach uh, 10 or 15 different religions. And we'll be focusing also on Eastern traditions in these big questions. So over the next several years, I want to learn more about the nothing that is resident at the foundation of Eastern traditions. But that is a different kind of understanding nothing. It is implying the, the essence of things that are existent. When I did these nine levels, and I'll go with them very quickly, I was just trying to think about nothing from an analytic perspective, from a scientific perspective. I make the claim that that's the way I think, but that doesn't mean that's how everyone thinks or everyone should think. It's just the way I think. So let me just go through the nine quickly and try to be as rigorous as possible in teasing apart. And some people have called this the subtraction argument. You start with everything that you know, and you start taking out things and then see what you have left. And as everything in philosophy, that's criticized as well. So my first level of nothing is just sort of the naive approach that says, well, we have empty space and you can't see anything and just look around and there's nothing there. And so what I call that is that's the ultra naive point of view. So the second level, it says, okay, now you can't see it, but there's stuff there. So take out all the matter. So no particles, uh, no energy is permitted. And so second level has still has your space time, but it doesn't have any matter energy in, in, into it. Third level gets rid of the matter and energy. And so that's at level three. Now, when you go to level four, Nothing as existing space and time is, it says that by necessity, 
there it's not just accidentally empty of matter and energy but there's something fundamental about it that it it doesn't exist at all it's totally empty irredeemably and permanently now the fifth kind of nothing now eliminates space and time as well as mass and energy they do not exist and this is the, the kind of nothing that physicists deal with but the physicists must have pre-existing laws, whether it's the laws of quantum mechanics or most likely some deeper theory, whether string theory or some other variant that's in there. Now, we'll talk later upon whether these are contingent or necessity. That's a different kind of axis with which to approach this, whether it's by necessity that way or it's just contingent. And there are some variations of that, that it's a kind of a brute fact which is sort of hybridizes the contingency and necessity. It's not a logical necessity, but it's sort of just the way it is and it's a full stop. All right, so th that's the fifth level. And that's what you know we like to focus on because that's where physicists start. When they have their quantum foam, they have no space and time as well as no energy. They have laws that will be able to generate this. And how they do that is very interesting. It may or may not be correct, but there is a, a logical coherence into what they say, and, and whether it's the particle antiparticles, the foaming energy, and and once in a great amount of uh, times, or even probabilistically, extremely low, that it would take ten to the ten to the ten to the ten to the ten levels you can't even calculate. But the point is that when you're dealing with eternity, in a sense that whatever has even the smallest probability will absolutely happen without doubt. And so that's like, like the Boltzmann brain, for example. The Boltzmann brain, right. So we can talk about that later. And, you know, that's where we may be. So let, let me go to the other levels, too, because the level of the fifth, where, where the physicists start and stop, I don't stop. I go further. And so the level six says nothing is not only is there no space and time and no mass and energy, but now there are no pre-existing laws of physics that could generate space, time or energy. Now, when you get there, you can think, how can... I go any further than that. Now, I got three levels below that of different kinds of nothing. Now, at this level, some people would challenge that the next three levels are conceivable, but cannot happen for one reason or another. Now, level seven would be a, a level that people who are materialists, who believe that only the material is real, would reject. People who believe in higher consciousness or God or something or other kinds of spiritual domains would allow seven. Because seven says that nothing is not only is there no space time, no mass energy, no pre-existing laws of physics, which was level six, but now there are no non-physical things or kinds that are concrete. So level seven eliminates non-physical concrete objects. Now, what is that? Remember, we eliminated all the physical stuff already. So now we're eliminating the non-physical, but we're eliminating the non-physical concrete objects. What's that? It can be God. It can be many gods. It can be kinds of angelic beings or realms of spirituality. It could be consciousness. It could be an unbounded ocean of consciousness, to quote a famous book. All of these things are part of what I would call non-physical concrete objects. Now, you may argue whether it's 
the ocean of consciousness or whether it's God or whether it's an angel or I put them all in the same category and I call them non-physical concrete objects. And in my level seven, I eliminate those to get nothing. Now, materialists, as I said, would reject that as all those non-physical concrete objects, they would say, are fictitious, nonsense, pre-scientific ways of thinking. I personally would probably not agree with that, but it's an argument that people have. So I want to put that in perspective. Materialist physicists would end their nothing with level six because they think seven is a waste of time because it really, you can't go there. But I'm saying that people who believe more in consciousness or God, level seven eliminates those. Now, once you do that, you have now no physical, no space and time, no energy, no pre-existing laws of physics, and now no non-physical objects, no God, no consciousness, no nothing. How can you go further than that? Well, level eight goes further. And now level eight eliminates non-physical abstract objects. Abstract objects, that means numbers, laws of logic, propositions, things that are by definition unable to have causative powers of any kind. Some people think that's all fictitious. It's the product of human construction and it sounds real, it sounds, it's conceivable, but doesn't exist. Others, so-called Platonists in mathematician, I interviewed a mathematician who was a Platonist. And so he believes that numbers really exist in some realm. And I would say, and he would say that if you believe in that, that's kind of more fundamental than the concrete non-physical objects, because you can imagine eliminating a non-physical concrete object. I can, I can imagine a world that has no God. It's possible. I, I, it may be wrong, but it's possible. But it's much more difficult to imagine a world that has no non-physical abstract objects like mathematics and the laws of logic. And then how could you go further than that? Well, I tack on a ninth level and I admit the ninth level could be subsumed in the eighth level, but I break it out just to make it interesting. And that is the ninth level eliminates possibilities. So possibilities would say that even if there are no abstract objects, I know this gets pretty abstruse, but even if there are no abstract objects, there still could be the possibility of abstract objects. And so that's my level nine. So those, that's the, that's the spectrum. I could have broadened it out. I could have broken up God and consciousness in different ways, but that's how I, I chose to do it, to get a, a deep feeling, a deep sense of what we mean when we say nothing. And to me, that is the foundation for understanding reality. That's my foundation where I start to see what is nothing and what are the components that we have to take out to understand nothing. And then building up from, then starting from that place, we can then see, because we know for sure that there's not nothing, even though I think it's conceivable there could have been nothing. Some people object to that. They think that's impossible. That's a debate we can have, but there's no debate that nothing does not obtain. There is nothing is not the way things were. I will concede that for sure. And so then we see why is that the case? Why is it that there is not nothing? And then what are the components that can cause that nothing condition, which I would say is from a pure a priori point of view, the easiest way for reality to have been 
is there have been nothing. People disagree with that, but that's what I would say. And the fact that that's not the case, does that demand a reason? Well, it certainly demands some components to explain why that's the case, whether that's a reason or not, that's another kind of discussion. So that's where I begin, and that's the foundation of Closer to Truth, really. All the different questions that we ask are derivative from that one fundamental idea. This is fabulous. This lays the ground for a wonderful possibility of discussion, how to build something from nothing. Now, if we come back to your experience when you had that feeling of nothing or you got into nothing, there was something there, of course, it was you, but that even you have not in your awareness because you had no thought, even no thought of the self, no thought of being, no thought of thinking about that thought that you eliminated and in which you went. But of course, you had consciousness, you had your awareness of the nothing. So that kind of experience would be at which level, if you like, of just consciousness of nothingness? No, that, that's a good probing question. The, the feeling I have, which I can almost, you know, I was 12 years old, but I can almost reproduce that feeling. It's similar to what I read that other people have, that people have in their uh, transcendental experiences and their aha experiences. And to me, it was, it was a very short moment. It really scared me. And it, it felt like I might be lost in it if, if I let it take me or something. I don't know. So I, I quickly tried to shut it out of my mind. And uh, as I told you, was, I successfully did for decades. I was obviously aware of that, but I don't, I don't start my analysis. And maybe this is an error. People say I err too much on the analytic and I don't have the experiential. And you know, I know this is a view that in TM you have and others have it more even aggressively. But I'm in, I'm in a position that I don't, trust my own emotions as a window to a reality. I had that one experience in life and other people have it much more intensely and much more often. Some people do it deliberately, but I don't see that as a, a window on what's real as opposed to just making me aware of how I have to think about the elements that I have to deal with. Now, again, that could just be my amateur uh, acolyte nature of myself, <laughs> maybe trained in science too much or analytic philosophy. But I can tell you that I am very passionate and I love all of this. It's not a game and it's not just an academic exercise. It's something that I feel very deeply about and have no illusions that I'm going to find things that other people don't. But I love sharing ideas and learning from other people and, and, and having a critical thinking, skeptical attitude towards everything, including my own opinions. Yeah, this is wonderful because in science, if we really want to find the truth, we have to be coming to it without prejudice. And that's a very important attitude, which really makes the possibility of learning and discovering available to us. Otherwise, if we come with a preset thinking, as you say, we, we are likely to miss a lot that we have, you know, discarded to start with. It is interesting that you talked about different beliefs or different ways of looking at things. In the ancient Rig Veda, which is one of the fundamental 
aspects of what we call the Vedic literature. Veda means knowledge. I mean, people extracted from it the religions and ways and beliefs, but it's really a science, a way of knowing. This kind of genesis aspect of where reality starts and from where it starts. In the Rig Veda and the 10th mandala, there are 10 mandalas, and the Sukta 129, there is a description of reality from the perspective of nothing, starting from nothing. And it actually says at the beginning or at one time, it doesn't even say beginning, it says it in a way that describes a reality where there is absolutely nothing. And it says neither death nor birth, neither consciousness nor not consciousness. Who knows it? Who doesn't know it? Even the gods don't know it. They don't know what it is, etc. And so they, they really kind of go in quite some detail about this, what is called total darkness, if you like, of absolute nothingness. Now, the number nine, if we want to acknowledge that we are something, you know, like take the Descartes feeling, I think therefore I am, at least that much is real. Number nine is kind of a concept, I would say, would you? That is not then a foundation of reality because you removed from it even the possibility that there could be something. Did I understand this correctly? It's a stretch. Of course, um, people would say, if you have difficulty eliminating abstract objects, some people say that's impossible. You just can't do that. That's why I put those with asterisk on number eight. And number nine is one step further. You can't even have possibilities. Now that seems impossible. There seems to be always possibilities. But again, this is from the standpoint of our structured mentality and how we think. And I was just trying to think step by step in the whole process, because I began with a motivation that I was annoyed by some of my physicist friends telling me they've discovered something from nothing. Although I appreciate the physics and understand how it happens, but it wasn't answering that question. It was answering a different question, which is a legitimate question, but it wasn't the question they thought it was. And so I can imagine a reality that would have no possibilities. I can't do that. But I can say that if we're going to describe all levels of nothing, it's an argument to put that in there. And, you know, as we say, run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's beautiful because actually it's a concept. It's like our consciousness is able to conceive of these layers of nothing. So our consciousness actually conceives all possibilities, including the possibility of no possibility. <laughs> so, so that is really the amazing aspect of our awareness, our consciousness. As you briefly mentioned in transcendental meditation, yes, we do experience nothing. And many, I have taught many people and I've had the experience myself and repeatedly. And sometimes those who start practicing transcending, which means to go beyond the surface level of the mind into the deeper levels, Sometimes they get scared when there is such an experience because they feel as if they're falling into the precipice and it's an endless precipice where there is absolutely nothing and there is no place where they will actually kind of end up stopping or landing. And we have to explain to them that they are still conscious and therefore ultimately 
it is consciousness it is consciousness is actually a reality of nothing also i mean that might put it at the seventh level i guess yeah look there are different ways to address the nature of reality and as i said i did it in a fairly narrow way of thinking what we're now doing is expanding that way of thinking and i'm i love to do that I don't necessarily think it depends on the levels I did because I had a very narrow approach to developing nothing. And so that's why on my level seven, when I'm eliminating things, I included consciousness and God and similar realms and different theosophies have different ways of imagining levels of dimensions or who knows what. I'm lumping all that together and I call that non-physical concrete things, because they're non-physical, but they are concrete. And so I'm putting them all together. Now, if one wants to now build back, you need to unpack that layer and say, okay, one way, if you believe, I, I, I mean, I don't mean you literally, but if, if one believes, and maybe you are a good example, that consciousness is the fundamental reality, then you stop at level seven or before level seven and say, I'm not, I, I cannot eliminate consciousness because that is my fundamental level of existence. Now, I have that as a possibility. That is a, a way to, that reality may be, but I'm not convinced of that. I can give you a whole series of ways reality could be, and that would be one of them. And maybe that's an interesting one. And maybe that has certain explanatory powers, but I can give you know some others. Just to pick some, I can defend a materialistic, physicalistic position. Uh, again, to distinguish materialism is sort of the ontology of material things. Even if material is way beyond what we currently think in physics, it still has the same kind of characteristics. Physicalism is People throw both terms synonymously sometimes, but physicalism generally means more a methodology of how you discern things. So a physicalist approach to methodology would be more use of analytic tools, the scientific method, and whereas materialism is more an ontological. So that's one whole series of things. A second series is consciousness as fundamental, cosmic consciousness, one big consciousness, we partake of that. I could do a pretty good job of explaining it, although I'm not a believer in that. I'm not rejecting it. I'm just not a believer in it. A third, and very different from the other two, is the widespread beliefs in a deity or deities in some sense, that there are, that personal power is the primary level of existence, personal being a, a god. Now, people who believe in that kind of reality, have similarities to the people who believe in consciousness and cosmic consciousness in that they both reject a physicalist or materialist way. They both reject that, but they are very different from each other in terms of which is priority, if you will. Because if you say cosmic consciousness is priority, you may not need God, or if you have God in some cases, it, God would be derivative of the consciousness. Now, that's an anathema to many in the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, which would have God as the ultimate necessity. 
in so-called perfect being theology, the omni-everything, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, all free, etc., that God is absolutely in the word is a saity, that everything that God is completely independent of any other kind of thing. And so this leads to all complex theologies that God has no parts, because if God had a part, then the part would be more important than God, that you'd have to see the parts, so God can't have any parts. So there's God is ultimately simple, and what that means. So all the characteristics are the same. Gets into very rarefied kind of philosophy in order to have this God be the ultimate fundamental reality. And so I would challenge philosophical theologians or those who would have, for example, the ultimate reality is good. There's an ethical or moral basis to reality. It's called axiology. It's a philosophical view. And so if there's a God, does the God create the good or is the good there and that God has to be subservient to the good? Because that's an anathema to the, those who believe that God has a saity. And so if you have a consciousness and you have God, then you have a tension between which is the priority and which is the most fundamental. And, and if you're going to argue for either of those positions, you need to confront that big, deep question. When you dig down below, what is the ultimate reality? So, you know, we're not going to answer that, but I just like exposing each of these worldviews, the materialist, physicalist worldview, the philosophical theology worldview of God being a necessity, the idealism view of consciousness and pure consciousness and cosmic consciousness. Each one of these worldview traditions are coherent when you understand them. They're each coherent in their own world. They each have pros and cons. But to me, neither has a lock at least on my belief system right now. Maybe you can change my mind. We still got a half hour to go, so maybe you can change my mind. Well, I would attempt, if I could, <laughs> to change the mind of, you know, this approach is beautiful. You've laid down pros and cons and the difficulties. The ultimate solution is going to be, on one side, a little empirical, which means we have to say that Realism, for example, of consciousness, that consciousness is, consciousness exists, even if many try to eliminate it and say it's an imagination, but, and also the realism, the reality of the physical existence. So these are as if leading to dualism, but there must be a way we can explain one or the other emerging from one or the other. And ultimately, it's going to be the explanatory power, I feel, that puts things together. For example, you have beautifully highlighted ultimate questions in one of your talks. And I think you came to 53 and you said they could be 100, but these are at least the, the ones that are, that are there. And these remain unanswered from any starting point that either the physicalist or the idealist have taken. And besides, they are not really always correlated. So epistemology, ontology, ethics, whether it is the means of gaining knowledge and why it is there, whether it is the actual essence and reality of things, or what is morality and what is purpose and what is telos, what is the 
purpose of things, the meaning of things, and all of these are patchy and separate, and they have not been put together as a cogent, coherent whole. You said different logics, of course, have their own coherence, which is true to some extent, and then you reach a point where you say why there is sin, why there is injustice, why there is suffering, you know, who did that? Why did they create it? Where is that omnipotent, omnipresent, all-loving, or whatever? Why did this? And then you get into freedom and determinism, and you get into choice, and we suffer because we choose this. You know, all of these topics, I'm sure that you have discussed and you've gone through because you're a real, real seeker of ultimate truth. So if I would suggest a solution, it would be, at least in principle, the solution that would put all of this together in a coherent whole without contradicting any of the findings that have been established either through science or through even reason and logic and that are empirical. So that is where the suggestion of a consciousness that is there and that has a mechanism because the idea of having consciousness as a primary aspect has been there. Of course, there is Leibniz, there is even Schopenhauer, there is Spinoza, but he made it a god, Spinoza for him, but that was for whatever historical reason. There is Advaita Vedanta, there is Parmenides, and all of that. They've talked about this ultimate one and ultimate reality. What has been missing is how to make this one many and why this many appear in the universe as we see it from the Big Bang, let's say, to evolution. And so that takes into consideration evolution, design, trial and error, and so many questions. You know, since you asked me to try to convince you, <laughs> I'm taking this time of your time where we want to listen to you, actually, to say that I thought after the search that I have done also myself in science and neuroscience and psychiatry and neurology and research, and then mostly with the study with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi about the Vedic tradition and the ancient tradition, and searching for these answers, and on the basis of direct experience through transcending personally, I came to put all of this together in what I believe is an answer to all of these points. And as you said, the explanatory power of it is what convinces me. I don't know if the time allows, I don't want to take time from not listening to you and <laughs> going on myself, but at least this is the basis of what personally convinces me of the truthness of the paradigm or the presentation. Look, I think that is a coherent position and it may indeed be the real position. I would only say that I could articulate your position about consciousness, not quite as well as you can, but in the ballpark, because I'm, I feel it, and I'm used to it, and I've talked to people. But I also could do the same with the other two big areas, which is materialism, physicalism, and perfect being theology. I could give an argument, and as I would argue with myself in each of those positions, 
when I was doing it, I could almost believe each one of those because I would argue each with the fervency, the explanatory power, recognizing the gaps of what you don't know, but make the argument that of all the positions, that's the most logical. I can do that. I can do it for all three. And when I'm finished and I, <laughs> I sit back, I can't tell you, therefore, I have determined it. Now, what I've not done, which you have done, is that deep personal experience. I did have that one thing when I was a child, and that created sort of a, an emotional vector for me that remained my whole life, but it didn't give me a sense that I was in touch with some kind of ultimate reality. That's not the conclusion I had. The conclusion I had was a sense of awe and a sense of impelling to try to understand. And so those people who say they've had that personal touch and people say the same, similar, the materialists don't say that, of course, <laughs> they, they're in touch with their scientific instruments, which, you know, they would feel is much more valid because it has third party verification. And whereas the other two don't, one being the consciousness experience of that deep sense of awareness of nothingness that you have in meditation and, and the yoga traditions. But the other big one is in the theological traditions that people have these religious experiences, which in a psychological way is not very different from what you're experiencing, but it may have some more form. It would have, you know, an image of a deity or a light or some love. It wouldn't have the nothingness and the being enveloped by the nothingness. It would be, you know, in the presence of God or the beatific vision or love or all of these feelings. And those personal experiences are very powerful to those people. And I, I accept that they really have that. You know, some people may make it up, but I feel that a lot of people are very genuine about that. I have not had that experience, so I can't say that they're wrong and I'm right because I haven't had it. You know, maybe I'm just lower on the spiritual uh, allocated people on spiritual levels. I might be, you know, near the bottom or something because I haven't had that. No, no, I don't. I wouldn't agree with that. I, you know, <laughs> on the intellectual level is something on the feeling and experience level. It's also another thing. And you are on the top of the intellectual level. It's, it's not top or bottom. It's just a great desire to know and People say, you, you know, after 25 years of doing closer to truth, are you any closer to truth? <laughs> and my honest answer is, I really understand the questions much better than I, I did at the beginning and progressively understand with all the people who have enriched my knowledge by understanding the questions really deeply and also expanded the nature of the questions and can organize the questions in different hierarchies and see how they articulate together. And that has given me a great sense of, uh, of um, fulfillment, understanding, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily make progress to what is the answer to everything, but by appreciating the nature of the questions and how they articulate together and how they can be organized really gives you a very good sense of the nature of reality to me. Is that ultimately satisfying? No. But I, I try not to fool myself as much as I would like to believe in lots of different things beyond the physical. I don't want to fool myself into thinking that something is real when it's not. But I, I would only say that each of the major ways of seeing the world, each has its own internal coherence. And within that coherence, fascinating descriptors of the nature of humanity. So the exercise that we all go through, I think, is a very 
important one. And, you know, I, for one, even if I'm not going to get any answer, it's impossible for me not to continue to do so. Wonderful. It would be a delight to actually share with you experience because that's the one thing you had on some level. And of course, we mentioned all these great people who had divine experiences or angelic experiences or communion with God and like that. And all of these are not in contradiction with each other. It doesn't have to be the experience of pure transcendence, which is total silence yet wakefulness, so wakeful alertness with silent, wakeful, restful alertness. It's one level of the transcendence, but there are all these layers of experiences. And as you mentioned, many sages, many saints in different religions have given their entire life after they've had such experiences and they felt that if this is something I can have, then that is the meaning of life, because that is really true fulfillment, true happiness, true bliss consciousness. And therefore, saints have gone through a very, very far interpretations of their experiences, surrendering to God or whatever. So that takes us to, you know, a whole field of definition of what is spiritual, what is God, God from whose perspective, what God expresses herself or himself in which way, under what conditions and why they favor this, not that, etc. So these are all the points that would take, I'm sure, closer to truth, many sessions to, <laughs> to unpack. And you've been doing it 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely great. So Ultimately, experience is very important because you can really know what a strawberry is by tasting it more than anyone can describe to you the taste of a strawberry. So there is an intellectual aspect that one can go through, but the direct experience is also revealing and is quite important. Still, the, the full explanatory power and putting everything together is very important. I like the concept of nothingness because I see in it also a resolution of one problem, which is the problem of beginnings and ends. In the physical perspective, we will always ask, where does it come from? How far is space? What is the limit of space? And where it will end? What will happen after it? So it's like the borderline is, you know, the packing the tortoise one of the other that is carrying the earth and you can keep putting one more. But if it is nothing, then at least it saves us from the question of when does it start and where does it come from? Because nothing is not in the context of physical reality that has a beginning and end. And in that sense, can we avoid the question of beginning and end if we have a concept of nothing as a primary value, even if we add to it, for example, consciousness? Because that is the paradigm that I found most explanatory in terms of how it develops, not just as a starting point. And that is that there is consciousness, which itself is nothing physical, that is nothing material, and purely 
outside the realm of time and space and localization of time and localization of space does it save us from saying where did it start and where does it end yeah i, I don't think so <laughs> and here's why i think we're using the term nothing in two different ways using the word nothing as sort of this background that doesn't therefore need a beginning or an end but having consciousness as part of that well in my way of thinking about nothing that that's not nothing and so i, I look at it a little bit differently i would say that I would start with nothing being kind of an a priori, the, the default condition that did not obtain. So what I would consider what should have obtained nothing forever at all levels of my nothing didn't. So there's a reason why it didn't. And I don't know that reason. So what, what kind of progress can I make towards understanding that reason? And I can't make much, but I would say this that I'd say that if nothing is the default condition, but it did not obtain, that something did obtain, what is that original something? You know, that could be consciousness, it could be, you know, be whatever, but what are its characteristics? And I would say that it's characteristics, it's either one kind or another kind, to be simplistic about it. One kind is whatever that original thing was, was of necessity, that in some sense, in some real sense, it would be impossible for it to have been otherwise. We use the mechanism of, of so-called possible worlds, which imagines total states of affairs of any different kind. I mean, the universally exhaustive, and you would say something that's of necessity, exists in every possible world. So it's impossible for it not to exist. That's one. The other is brute fact or what some might call contingent necessity or contingency all the way down that it's just the way it is and we can't make progress beyond that and so we know there was something that is foundational whatever it is consciousness god string theory doesn't matter whatever it was is either of necessity in some deep sense um in some logical sense perhaps or it's just the way it is. In the famous BBC debate between Bertrand Russell and Father Copleston, which is to me one of the great intellectual encounters that I've ever seen, Copleston puts the same kind of question, the question of existence to Russell. And Russell is, you know, famous for the Principia Mathematica, two giant volumes and the history of Western philosophy, 800 pages of genius and Bertrand Russell's answer is, you know, the universe is, and that's all. You know, he had like five words, I forgot the exact, and he, he sat down and Copleston said, is that all you have to say? And Russell, yeah, that's all I have to say. Copleston <laughs> said, you mean, then we can't make progress beyond that? Russell said, no, that's it. And so that takes the position. He's not saying in the universe is of necessity, but he's saying it's a brute fact and we can't make progress beyond it. So, you know, that's what I would say. It's either one or the other. It's that whatever is fundamental, most fundamental, whether it's consciousness or God or the laws of physics or whatever it is, is either of necessity, which we can't understand why it would be such, but it would be such, or that's just the way it is. And there's no progress that can be made. Not that human beings can't understand it, but that there's nothing there to understand. 
that it's just that's the way it is. If it's a necessity, and many philosophical theologians try to prove that God is a necessity, I think that those arguments are not strong, that God is some kind of logical necessity or some kind of necessity. I don't think those arguments work, but it is, I, I would say that it is possible that God is necessary, but I am not able to understand why, and people who think they understand why, I don't think they get it either. <laughs> um, so that's one view, that we can't understand why God is a necessity. Even if God is a necessity, we can't understand why. The other is that even God is just a contingent reality, that that's just the way it is. And it's not a necessity. It's just that's the way it always is and, and can be. And so that's, that's where I look at this foundational idea. Another point that I think I'd like to make in terms of our conversation is we're using the word consciousness because you and I in each own way really understand what we mean by it. This inner awareness that we have that is, you know, the internal movie that we all see that there's something like to be this experience. That is obviously not a universally accepted idea. And in terms of explaining consciousness, which we focus on a lot on Closer to Truth, there's a whole series of different kinds of explanations about what consciousness is. So I wouldn't want to leave that unsaid, because what I like to do is array the different ways of explaining consciousness. I did a paper one time on it, and I think I also got nine different ways of explaining it. There's nothing magic about nine. It's just a coincidence I did nine nothings and nine consciousness. But when I did the consciousness, I had number one, and the progress was moving from physical to spiritual or some sort of a gradation. So number one is obviously materialism or physicalism. Materialism, only the material is real in an ontological sense. Physicalism means you're, you're only able to discern through scientific method and physical methods what's real. And then a subset of that is eliminative materialism, basically that consciousness is an illusion, which most people would not agree with, even materialists would say that consciousness is real, but it's material. So that's number one. And I jumped to number nine, which is all the extreme end would be, I believe, your position that consciousness is the only reality, that cosmic consciousness is one universal consciousness of which somehow we all partake in or have part of and in some sense, and that everything is derivative from consciousness in some sense. The physical world may be real, maybe it's not real, but in either way, if it's real or it's not real, it's still derived from consciousness. So that's number one and number nine to me, but I have seven in the middle go through with you if you want, but, but there are a lot of different theories about what consciousness is in terms of how to explain it in terms of what we know for sure. We know for sure we have the consciousness experience, which seems to be impossible to derive from physical things. You had a nice quote in your book from Jerry Fodor, who was a wonderful person. Uh, you know, sadly, he he passed away and we were in process of him coming on closer to truth. Wonderful person. But he made what I forgot the exact quote, but something it's not that we, we don't have a sense of what it would be like to have a theory of consciousness. We don't have a sense to even know what it is to have a sense to have a theory of consciousness. <laughs> yes. Very well said. Um, and that has seen the emergence of some people, philosophers, even scientists moving away from a pure materialism towards panpsychism and different varieties of 
consciousness is somehow built into the structure of the universe on a fundamental level, equal to the physical world. And then I had number eight, a dualism, where consciousness and physical world both have similar levels of ontological reality. And then the question is, how do you interact? And there are many different theories in, in between about how consciousness works. Integrated information theory by Giulio Tononi has some kind of radically interesting ideas. And some religious people have gone to uh, my third category, which was non-reductive physicalism, which has sort of a top-down causation where the mind is real, but there is no, no immortal soul, which most religions believe they eliminate the soul, have top-down causation, non-reductive physicalism, sounds like you want to have your cake and eat it. I'm not sure that works. But my point is, is that there's a, a spectrum of explanatory approaches to consciousness. And I think it behooves those of us who really want to discern this is to lay them out and to say, here are all the different ways people come about, each of which has its own positives and, and negatives. And I would personally not be a physicalist in the traditional sense, but you know I'm not prepared to say for sure which of those other categories I'd, I'd want to put myself into. Yeah, this is wonderful. Maybe as as a thinking about all that together, we can tell, and I hope you also agree that all of these layers do not have to be a contradiction one with the other. So even if we take into consideration the layers of nothingness or the level of nothing, it doesn't mean that if one is, the other is not, which means you can have a nothing of the nine's possibility is the only one actually that, that eliminates possibilities. But if you just accept the eights, which is just possibilities, then possibilities, reality can be there at the same time as, you know, the platonic forms or similar to that, any kind of the ideas or numbers or something. And then ultimately add to that time and add to that the framework of reality and then add to that this. So it really depends on our perspective looking at reality and reality including all of these these aspects which means for example in the layers of consciousness we can say that everything if we start with the idea that everything is consciousness it doesn't eliminate the fact that consciousness can appear as matter can appear as dualist because we do have a mind and a body and this is a reality it doesn't contradict the fact that there are layers of consciousness, which means a perspective that is inclusive of the higher consciousness, the lower consciousness, the limited consciousness, the very limited consciousness, and even the no consciousness, which is a concept of nothing in that case. So would you agree with the inclusiveness or if, except, of course, for theoretical perspective, if one is true, the other is wrong, but can, they can coexist. From your perspective, I see the coherence of what you would say. From the perspective that I use, I don't do that, because what I would say is the following. In my discussion about, I'll give you an example today on mathematics, whether it's invented or discovered, whether you're a Platonist and believe it's 
out there in some real realm or a fictionalist and just it's a construct of the human mind that invented, discovered. The mathematician said much what you're saying. He said, well, you can have both. Why are you excluding you? You can have it in the platonic realm and you can have it invented also. And to me, that is not correct. Because what that means, if Platonism is real, even if the other is real, that means if any of mathematics is not invented, any of it, then it's not. It's like being pregnant. You can't be pregnant and not pregnant. You can't have mathematics being Platonist and not a Platonist at the same time. Because if you allow the Platonism to exist at all, it is comprehensive. It means there is a Platonic realm of reality in which things, abstract objects, numbers are inhabit. And there is something like that. Even if it's 001%, there is something like that. And I take the same approach to consciousness, because if the answer is that there is one ocean of consciousness, <laughs> uh, then you can do whatever you want with that. That's the answer. And the other answers, the people who would say that consciousness is non-reductive physicalism or qualius space integrated information theory or a functional epiphenomenalism, all these different ideas, those are not correct. You might embed that within that to give them, maybe make them feel good, but that's not the answer. The answer is that there's one consciousness and that's universal and we partake in it. And that's the whole answer. So I'm not willing to be a synchronist and sort of admit everybody into this grand, make everybody happy because that, that doesn't do it for me. I want to know what's the answer. I don't think I can find it. And I think that there are other aspects. So if you have the ultimate reason, and if it is universal consciousness, then it's a next series of questions about what is the physical world. So if you say that consciousness is this universal ocean that is pre-existent, that transcends existence. In Islam, they say God is not even being. It's not being and not not being, it's beyond being. So if consciousness is beyond existence and it's beyond the nothing, if that's consciousness, okay, you win. That's what it is. Now let's try to understand how we get all the other things, how we get the material world, how we get physics, how the brain interacts with it. Those are all very interesting and important questions that we would deal with. But it starts with that fundamental aspect of what consciousness is. If that's not correct, well, what is correct? Whatever it is, you start from there and then have to explain other things. I'm not willing to sort of make all people who have different ideas part of this kumbaya happiness. I wish I, I wish I were. I see a lot of people that way. I wish I could be so happy, but I'm not. <laughs> what if these are just, you know, it's consciousness. We're talking about consciousness. And that is an entity that has a nature. We're calling it entity. And what is its nature? It's to be conscious. Now, what if one can be conscious in different ways? See, it's like the pure existence and to exist. Pure existence, if we say consciousness is pure existence, then to exist is, is part of the nature of consciousness to be conscious. And to be conscious means there is multiplicity because there is an observer, a process of observation and an observed. So you're already creating a dynamic in which the quality of the observer 
looking at itself or looking at another object can be different. And so that consciousness, if it is to be conscious in all possible ways, it can be conscious in a small way, it can be conscious in a big way. It is not trying to accommodate, but there is the infinite consciousness as a pure existence, and there is the to be existing, to be conscious, and to be conscious can be in an infinite number of ways. So that is where differences arise. So the way we're looking at each other, we're discussing, we're thinking, the way we are being is one way of being conscious of another object, which is itself consciousness, but we have means and ways and limited ways, bigger ways of being conscious. So if we say this is also real, then we are accepting what is physical as real, not as a physical entity, but as one perspective of consciousness on itself. So it is not just trying to accommodate things that are not based on the initial proposal, it's that the initial proposal of consciousness allows different ways of being conscious. And what we see as the physical is the different perspectives of consciousness on itself. Yeah, I see that, as I said, as a coherent position that has a self-perpetuating ideas within it. And I would not reject that as a possibility. But you begin the process by almost assuming in your premise the argument that you're trying to make. So you're assuming in your premise that there is this consciousness external and, and universal and therefore move your arguments and explain the various things. And at the end, say, therefore, there is this consciousness. But I don't see it that way. I see that you've embedded your conclusion in your premise. You still may be right. And when you have the consciousness, you need to do all the derivatives and explanations of all the other things. But that's not the only explanation for consciousness. I mean, there are very good arguments that support a materialistic, physicalist approach to consciousness. We don't understand how it all works, but you know, you, you know, the typical consciousness is, is affected by drugs you take, or being hit on the head, or trauma, or sleep, or hypnosis, or meditation. All these different things that are brain activities affect consciousness. Even, you know, near-death experiences, many scientists would say, is the product of a changing brain chemistry near death. A lot of people argue that, of course, but nobody disputes the fact that consciousness is directly dependent on the brain. And the question is, does it go beyond the brain? And, you know, I think it's a legitimate question. Other people think it's not. But my point is that there are different uh, premises that one makes in beginning to understand what consciousness is. And you know, there are many different ones today. And to me, it's a, it's a fascination that even in the, those who reject a cosmic consciousness, who look to the brain to derive consciousness, see it on such a vastly different scale level that you know, some would have a global workspace in the brain, which is the broad uh, electrochemical waves that go back and forth. That's what I studied in my doctorate is thalamic cortico uh, interactions. That was my PhD in neuroscience. 
And some people say that's the nature of these big brainwave uh, cascading waves. Others would say uh, the other, other extreme, it's the quantum coherence or decoherence within microtubules, within individual neurons. So you have this vast scale difference of physicalists who believe in that trying to find consciousness in the brain. So all I'm saying is, is that it is not a clear case to make that consciousness is the primary activity, is, is fundamental to everything, because other people are just as convinced that other things that are generating consciousness. And then there are, as I said, panpsychism, which says that in addition to the pure, the physical world, which is real, there is a non-reducible element of reality, which has a consciousness component that every physical field or force has something proto-consciousness in it. And so then in some combination, and there's a combination problem, how you get things together, you know, each one has its own aspects and its own concepts. So so I said, Giulio Tononi in his integrated information theory has what I think is called, at least I call it qualia space, that there are somehow dimensional structures that each represent a consciousness precept. And there's, you know, an infinite number of these and they exist in some higher dimension. And we access this through integrated information theory. That's a radically different idea of what consciousness is. I mean, so we have these diverse kinds of thinking, which is indicative of that consciousness is something very odd in the nature of reality. This is wonderful. Now you're hunch feeling intuition rather than just because the reasoning can take us in all directions. Let's compare the physical and the mental in terms of realism. Is consciousness more real in our human experience and life and understanding after having gone through the study of the material and the physical from physical even perspectives, looking at what is the origin of matter as as physical energy, as fields, quantum fields, and going into more and more unified fields, as if matter kind of has its own way of disintegrating as a localized entity. And yet we have consciousness, and consciousness is what we refer to all the time, going back to Descartes, you know, and Descartes' devil or whatever demon, let's call it, that, you know, everything is an imagination, but I am thinking, I am conscious, therefore I am. So your feeling is which way you would finally go? It's a great question. I, I love being tested and probed like a, a little cell under a microscope, because that's good. I would sort of attack the views of both positions. And so I obviously have studied and I've spent a great deal of time in the physical world, neuroscience and everything. And I I would say that my hunch, and that's a good way to put it, is that there is more to consciousness than can be discerned with the scientific method. That's my hunch. I'm not sure of that. It's possibly I could be proven wrong, but that's my hunch. That's what your consciousness is telling you. <laughs> I don't know who's telling me that. Maybe, maybe it's the evil demon, but, but, but that, that's, that's my hunch. On the other hand, I do not see idealism as a kind of a satisfactory explanation of reality. That would leave too many questions if you have, you know, kind of cosmic consciousness in some 
I don't know, impersonal way as, as fundamental reality. And then somehow that consciousness, which is expressed both universally and divisibly by all these different creatures that are conscious in one way or another, that to me does not sound like what I would call ultimate reality. That does not sound coherent. So my hunch is that that is not correct either. So I'm uh, a little bit of a, uh, of, a, of a skeptic to, to both, both ends of the spectrum. Wonderful. Thank you for your vision and your study and your bringing people closer to truth. <laughs> At the end of the day is the explanatory power also and the direct experience. Maybe they will contribute to clarifying what ultimate truth is plus, of course, our scientific developments and understanding of the nature of things. Thank you so much for being with us. Anything you'd like to say before we close? I appreciate our conversation, Tony. We're both on the same journey with uh, everyone else on Earth, whether they know it or not. We're, we're all on the same team. Uh, and to me, it's a privilege to be able to ask these questions and to have you know, fellow human beings join us on, on the journey. Wonderful. It's been a delight, really wonderful experience to be with you. A great human being, researcher, scientist, thinker, and bringing people closer to reality and truth with questions and answers from different perspectives. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.